Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRV Health's Keith Viglioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hey everybody, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. I am here with our great host, Keith Viglioli of LRV Health. Keith, it's been quite a morning trying to connect to record this thing. Today was the outright struggle of all times in the history of our almost three-year podcast here. <laughs> do you think, I mean, given the, the, the topic of today, do you think we're being cyber hacked, attacked? We might be cyber hacked or maybe the, <laughs> la- the, maybe the leaf blower in your backyard right now is, is coming in and trying to take over your network. I think so. I think you, you might be a, a foreign agent just trying to, to keep you from getting the truth out because you had uh, quite a conversation with today's guest. You spoke with Tim Kasiba and he's CEO of Bracket F. And that's a subsidiary of Redacted. So there's a lot of cool words here and uh, makes it sound even more mysterious. So what'd you folks talk about? <laughs> yeah, I'm not so sure. You and I are cool enough to even decipher what bracket F means. <laughs> that, I'm that, sure uh, it means something, but yeah, I'm not sure what it is. I have a sneaking suspicion it has something to do with cybersecurity. <laughs> that would be an appropriate name, I suppose. It's not, it's not an NCAA uh, reference, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, this is what a morning. So, <laughs> Tim, this is a really interesting one because, you know, I've been close to what I'll call the intersection of cybersecurity and healthcare for a long time. Given some of my previous operating roles, had sort of firsthand visibility of what you need to do in some of these areas to be proficient. And we wanted to get a world class expert to talk about this in healthcare because I still think it's a pretty it's a known issue, yes, but it's not at the detail level a really known issue of how big of a problem this is for the industry. And even last week, I talked about this in our discussion, you know, Common Spirit got hit pretty hard with a cyber event that took down its electronic medical record and literally forced itself in a bunch of locations back to paper. And so this is happening every day. It almost feels like it's happening so much that people are really not paying enough attention to it. So we wanted to get this expert, and Tim is just one of those guys that, has just been in the trenches on this topic in multiple industries for a long period of time and frankly, probably the best seat in the federal government. And so, you know, Tim started out in the Navy well before cyber was kind of a thing in terms of some intelligence roles, then moved over to the FBI, got recruited to the FBI to start doing some cyber intelligence. And then finally, for the last number of years, or even maybe decades, was over at NSA. Wow. And so just sort of sitting in the middle of all this, so much fun that I couldn't really get a lot of the fun details out of him because of his security clearance, of course. But we got some details out of it, which was fun. But he was great. And the discussion was terrific. And I think people should really listen to this one because this is a problem for our industry that, frankly, is just not going away. Yeah, no, it's, it's something that uh, we all talk about. Like, yeah, 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 that's an issue, especially on medical devices. But it's definitely not going away. And I'm not sure if the technology is even trying to catch up to where it needs to be. So it's certainly an important conversation. So what was your takeaway at the end of the conversation? Did you wonder why should I even move forward with this career in healthcare? Or is there any reason for hope? Or do we not want to spoil the end of this? I mean, I think there's two big issues that were my takeaway. One is just the knowledge gap. I think there's a massive knowledge gap in what I'll call the people that really understand cyber and what needs to be done and then the people that are in healthcare that really don't understand the topic at the detail level mm-hmm. a lot of times. And this runs a gamut from 
software vendors, the hospitals, the payers, the medical device companies, which you know well. And I just think there's a giant knowledge gap of what has to be done and the level of resiliency that has to be put in place on multiple fronts when it comes to this topic. And the second, which is tied into that, is just governance. We talked a lot at the end of this discussion about what is the board's responsibility of any of these entities? If you're a publicly traded medical device company, what is your responsibility as a director? If you're a not on a big nonprofit board like Common Spirit, what is your responsibility for Common Spirit based on just you know the events of last week? Like, what is your board role? And more importantly, do we need to start mandating? And I talked a little bit about government intervention on some of this stuff. I don't know how you mandate this, but like, does there always need to be somebody on the board that has this level of hygiene? And it just Great feels question. like we have a huge gap on yep. that front at the board level the management team level a lot of times and at the detail levels on the front line. So that was the two big takeaways I had. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's an important one too, because as a patient, we don't have a choice. Like we can't opt not to sign up for whatever app or things like that to protect our security. If you need a pacemaker, you're getting a pacemaker and everyone needs an EMR. So there is a responsibility, I was going to say fiduciary, but a real responsibility for these entities to provide protection. So Important, important conversation. And real risk. And this runs a gamut from people's obviously personal health information, people's personal health sometimes with the devices, to an overall liability issue. I mean, this is just such a broad spanning kind of set of issues that, you know, I, I still think, and I noted this in our discussion and people can get into it for a little bit more detail. I still think the government should get involved here. This is an area that in my opinion, if you think about what happened with meaningful use, it just feels like, you know, we spent a lot of money getting a lot of this digitization started happening. Now, where in all of this is the minimum baseline to have some level of regulatory effect or tax effect if somebody doesn't do something, something as simple as a SOC 2 compliance reading mm-hmm. or a pen test every six months to a year? These are baseline things that need to be done for any vendor that has an IP address. Nope. Great point. I mean, this is patient safety, maybe personal safety, it may be financial safety, maybe security safety, but it's patient safety. So, all right, let us, uh, I don't think we can overwrite the conversation, but uh, let's just step out of the way. Hear your conversation with Tim Kasiba, CEO of Bracket F. Okay, well, welcome back to the Healthcare is Hard podcast. We have a different one today, a topic that is near and dear to my heart, even started a company in this area not too long ago. But the intersection of cybersecurity and healthcare, and I can't think of a better guest to talk about this than Tim Kosiba, who is the CEO of Bracket F, which is a subsidiary of Redacted. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Keith. Thanks very much. So this one's fun because I have spent many years trying to think about sort of the on ensuing problem of as we digitize healthcare, what that ultimately means to the endpoints of all the different data, and you know as well as I do, how much data is getting produced every day in healthcare and and how open some of these environments are. But I would love, like we got lucky enough to have a chat with you. I would love to start with just you and your background because it's it's beyond impressive. And I can't think of somebody better who would understand this from not just the federal side, but many different hats you've worn over the years. But I'd love to learn a little bit more about yourself and your background. 
Well, thanks. Obviously, it's always talk about myself. It's always tough to do that, but I'm happy just for context for people to understand where I'm coming from. I started my federal career after finishing college with NIS at the time, Naval Investigative Service, and that subsequently become the Naval Criminal Investigative Service after Tailhook in 1989, and then got moved to London in 1992. I worked a uh, what was a computer forensics case back then that wasn't known as computer forensics as it is today on the USS Kitty Hawk. That case ended in a conviction regarding a military member that did something nefarious on the ship, turns out, just to impress his friends. Nonetheless, it was still against the law. So I had to do a presentation on that, was asked to do a presentation on that at the SAMS conference. Met a lot of FBI folks that were part of a computer analysis response team program that was just starting up. And so I was offered a position with the FBI and moved over from NCIS after moving back stateside to work at the FBI CART program back in 1996. The Bureau subsequently, while working in the CART program, sent me to graduate school, graduated in 99. Back then, healthcare fraud was a big deal. So that's when my first exposure to the healthcare industry when it came to computer forensics. Janet Reno had a big push going after medical doctors that were committing healthcare fraud or even other institutions or elements of those institutions. And then 9-11 happened. And so things like child pornography and healthcare fraud weren't as important as counterterrorism was. And that's when I started working closely uh, in the forensic side of things with the National Security Agency out of Fort Meade. I was running an FBI CART program laboratory back then, started working closely with NSA. We were getting a lot of media back and over a period of about five years, made a lot of progress there on the counterterrorism side of things and was subsequently asked by General Alexander to quit the FBI and come to NSA. I was working as an FBI employee going in and out of NSA, which was very unusual back then for those that might have read the 9-11 Commission report. It was problematic and people were not connecting those dots. And again, I have always viewed my federal career as just a privilege. I was just another taxpayer trying to do good things. So I moved over to NSA. I just wanted to contribute. The idea of doing offensive cyber back then was what I was asked to help contribute to and build policies and things like that. We couldn't say offensive cyber back then, but that's when it sort of started with the predecessor to Cyber Command, which was the Joint Functional Component Command for Network Warfare, otherwise known as JFCCNW, as a technical director there and then worked closely with elements to develop the policies associated with what is today Cyber Command. Worked there in Cyber Command, moved over to tailored access operations in my first tour of TAO, working in requirements and targeting. Again, just building up the infrastructure and the policies associated with doing intelligence gathering in cyber, but also offensive cyber capabilities. And then subsequently got moved to Australia to run the NSA office in Canberra. Came back, worked on the Commercial Solutions Center, working with private industry related to the folks that work with NSA. And then subsequently got asked to um, take over for Rob Joyce at the time, who was running tailored access operations to be his successor after he took the uh, White House position under the Trump administration. So I was fortunate and privileged enough to run TAO and what is now Computer Network Operations or CNO for a period of three years. And that was essentially going to be the cataclysmic end of my career. But General Noxoni had other thoughts and really wanted me to do one more. So 
I agreed to do one more and move here to Georgia and take over as a deputy commander of NSA Georgia, which is the largest cryptologic center outside of Fort Meade. Wonderful two years in that position. Just have great respect for the organization. Love doing that. But it was sort of time after 33 years to maybe get involved in something else and sort of contribute back. And I really, I say this wholeheartedly, it really is about public-private partnerships that have matured today, even in the healthcare industry that allow us to make some progress. And that's what I wanted to be a part of. And that's a great segue too, because I think your experience and a crossover of public-private and then just how the healthcare industry works to your point on public-private, not just on cyber, but on multiple fronts, obviously. So I can't think of a better person to talk about this topic than you, which is, it's an interesting topic, you know, when you think about it broadly in healthcare, because it kind of comes in and out of the headlines almost every week which is the most fascinating thing to me. And people are almost numbed by it a little bit. And so like when you step back and you think about sort of the current threat level or maybe the current threat level cross industry to the US right now, has that changed substantially over the last decade or so? Do you think it's much worse than it was before or not? You know, we were joking before in the preamble, like not to be a fear monger, but I think it's a good reality check because no one has seen or realize some of the reality of this stuff better than you. How should we think about that maybe as a whole? And then maybe how is that for like the average healthcare facility or or healthcare player? Yeah, well, yes, I think it has gotten worse and it will continue to get worse. We are just in this digital age today that's so explosive and everything is digitized, especially when it comes to medical records. So it is going to continue to get worse. Cyber is a part of asymmetric warfare. We're continuing to fight that asymmetric warfare every single day to your reference of all the articles that are coming out almost daily and weekly regarding ransomware attacks and things like that on healthcare facilities, but also in other institutions associated with the critical infrastructure of the country. And so if you just look at statistics alone that are frankly staggering. Fortune Magazine had an article recently that cited a bunch of FBI statistics from 2021 649 U.S. critical infrastructure entities were hit with ransomware attacks. Essentially, 90% of all U.S. critical infrastructure sectors were hit successfully by a ransomware attack in 2021. It's been a target for many, many years. It's a soft underbelly of our country. And so adversaries are going to come after that. CISA was formed in 2018 to essentially come up with new policies and structures and laws and recently reporting procedures that will hopefully mitigate some of the threat landscape that we have today, but it's still a long way to go. When you think about that to the point we're saying, I mean, you know, this week, I know you were out this week on vacation, but like Common Spirit, which is the second largest health system in the country, the headline is it's the biggest unprecedented cyber attack in sort of the history of healthcare. So that's a big deal. Like, we don't know exactly all the details, curious yet. But then like, who are these actors? Like, how should people think about the actors that are coming after healthcare data? And are those actors different coming after healthcare data than say different your financial data? And obviously there's a lot of crossover in that in terms of some of the banks and some of the critical infrastructure. But how should people think about that? Because we have a lot of people that play in this space, but they don't really understand at the depths level, like all the different things that are at play here. No, absolutely. And people in the healthcare industry, at least as a layman, are very focused on the 
what I characterize as a doctor-patient experience, right, which is very critical uh, to all of us as human beings as we enjoy, hopefully, really good trusting relationships with our doctors. Cybersecurity is sort of being bolted on in an afterthought because of all the devices in a hospital that are now becoming network connected and essentially vulnerable to these attacks. So your question relating to the actors, clearly these are often nation state sponsored actors or groups, oftentimes coming out of Russia. The trend is very specific. We can see that and attribution is tough. It's tough for the government to attain attribution. They go to a great deal of effort to determine attribution of a specific attack. And I'm sure this recent attack will go through the same protocols to determine attribution on which actor is likely responsible. But a lot of the actors are Russian ransomware gangs, and they are somewhat sponsored, a lot of them, by the nation of Russia and are allowed to operate without impunity from Russia and other countries. And is it pure profit motive or is it profit motive plus disruption? So to stay with the common spirit example, their medical record system, which is, I believe, Cerner, was offline at a number of facilities and everything had to be turned to paper. And so clearly that disrupts people's scheduling, surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. So like if you have a Russian sponsored, I'm just playing with the point you made, you know, gang, that's, is that just a profit? Like to go take that data and put it on the black market, make some money, or is there something else to it? So most of them are purely for profit. The value of a medical record today, especially a complete medical record, uh, is oftentimes somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand dollars. You multiply that by millions, you can see the money we're talking about. So a complete medical record, which essentially can lead to a theft of an identity and therefore the ability to get credit cards and do other things is just huge for a gang like ransomware gang. So yes, it is mostly profit, but I do believe there's another element that comes into, like you were talking about earlier mentioned, beyond just profit. And that's essentially, it could be to do disruption for purposes of imposing costs on either an industry or a nation through reputation loss or something else, right? Because we have the best healthcare in the world. And uh, obviously, we're going to be seen, and not even to mention the intellectual property that's associated with our medical institutions around the country, the value of that to other countries that don't have it. So it's definitely profit motive, but I think it, it is also allowing them asymmetrically to impose costs regarding reputations and therefore distrust. Because if you see what's happening in all different elements of cyber attacks or ransomware attacks, it's to lower that trust level or disruption in the leaders of either an organization or a public institution, for instance, or a government to just lower that trust level. Yeah. And to your point earlier, too, I would think that each subsector is a little different, right? So, you know, a hospital has a full medical record, to your point, a health plan with a claims business and some of their warehousing has some subsets of a full record, but has a lot of claims analysis and a lot of PCI. And then 
the life science folks, to your point, I think, which is, this doesn't get talked about too much. And you brought it up. I just want to touch on it for a second is like all their IP. So if you think about, I would think that there was a big target there on the life science, med tech, biotech, those types of players, and really going after that for maybe different reasons. A lot of them financial reasons, but also reputational loss. Sure. I would assume state-based actors that may be more sponsored by government, whether it's North Korea, Russia, whoever. We saw this a little bit with COVID when, when they're doing the RNA and, uh, sort of formulation. It seemed like a lot of people were trying to tap into Moderna and Pfizer, sort of various systems to get at that. Sure. Obvious value there. Yeah. And then when you step back, because you sit at this at a high level, seeing into a bunch of different industries, how do you think about healthcare comparatively to financial services compared to you know CPG consumer and et cetera like how do you think about them is everybody sort of in a in a pretty bad state or is healthcare in a worse state than others I think healthcare is in a little bit of a worse state because cybersecurity was not really thought of early on when it comes to the networking of hospitals and the digitization so to speak of of a medical institution, whether it's a doctor's office or a full-blown hospital, or even a company like Cerner or Epic, clearly now they changed their thought over the last several years with the increase in ransomware attacks and certainly the value of medical records and what they are today in the black market when it comes to a profit-motivated ransomware gang and getting, because again, the techniques are changing every year, right? The adversary can adapt much quicker than we can adapt our policies, but we're in a very defensive mode to sort of predict and prevent these ransomware gangs from coming after us, whether the nation state sponsored or not. It's a very lucrative business. So the healthcare industry is definitely in a very precarious situation. I always use just my personal example, you know, when I go into my doctor's office and I sit down and talk to the doctor, the first thing he does is pulls up my medical record. Is he doing two-factor authentication right off the bat, right? Is he doing that? You ask your doctor that question? I absolutely do, because <laughs> he knows what I do. So I'm, I'm absolutely going to, hey, doc, where's the two-factor authentication? He'll say, Tim, don't start. So <laughs> we're going to have a conversation someday. But you look at these because it's about that patient doctor experience and slowing that down through two-factor authentication is just not something that's that's sort of thought about and certainly in a doctor's office you know they're not talking about incident response plans if they were hit but yet you can go out of that patient room and you can see on the wall just the thousands and thousands of medical records associated with a large doctor's office and how much of those folders have been digitized and where do they actually exist right and then of course the financial information associated with that. Now, a lot of you asked about other industries, obviously big impacts to credit card companies or even the Home Depot attacks or Target or some of the big ones went after credit card numbers, right? So there is a very lucrative business to also go after you know, credit card numbers. And is the breakdown in your mind in healthcare an awareness issue? Is it a resource issue? Is it a governance issue? And then I'll get into next, like, where does the federal and state government come into this? Or is it all the above? And we just have a perfect storm in healthcare because we have a rich data set of targets. And then we have a, a set of resources that really haven't paid a lot of attention to this over the years. And now we're just trying to play catch up and then also have these huge labor woes. Yeah, that's a great question. I think because that could apply across any industry. Personally, I think it's a 
uh, cybersecurity is a business decision. It costs money and it's overhead to protect what you have. So I do believe it's definitely a financial problem, but it's also a knowledge problem. It's an awareness problem. I know when we work with different institutions, some folks don't even have an incident response plan. They've not even thought about it. Their budgets associated with cybersecurity are very, very small. So being able to actually do something about it, but you have to, you, you mentioned knowledge. It is a knowledge problem. You can't fix what you don't know is wrong with the situation. So we oftentimes will ask folks, have you done penetration testing? Do you know how vulnerable you are? Your IP infrastructure throughout your network facility, if I walk into a room and I plug a cable into an Ethernet jack, am I going to get an IP address or not? If you don't know the answer to that question, like we need to have further conversation, right? You need to be aware of that for all kinds of different reasons. So yes, I do believe it's a knowledge problem, but we can't get to the knowledge problem until we determine what that in fact, it's important enough to apply financial resources and resources are expensive. They're very, hiring a CISO today is very, very expensive. So there are opportunities to work with a company like Redacted, but it could be other companies as well that do virtual CISO. You don't have to hire somebody that's going to make a quarter million and upwards a year that has some background in that area. You could actually work with a company that could help you leverage the people you do have and impart that knowledge and do very basic things to sort of mitigate. You know, a lot of these attacks actually happen simply because two-factor authentication and some other patching protocols are not followed. We're still seeing that today across many attacks. And I'm certainly not referring to the recent one. I have no idea the details behind some of the recent ones. But in the past, a lot of them have been phishing attacks through emails. People are just not conscious of their attack vector and what they need to do to protect themselves at the very basic level. If they just did that much, we would be a lot better off just because of your unique background on the federal side, but you have a lot, obviously a lot of state government interaction too. I've been asking this question forever. Where is the line for the federal government and state governments to get involved here? I I think your point you made, which was so, I thought, spot on, which is cybersecurity is a business decision. The next question I have is like, is there something in the regulatory nature of the world we live in in healthcare that the federal and the state government should step into this problem? Or is this just like, Hands off. I mean, yeah, we got NIST. Good luck. Follow, you know, follow NIST. We'll keep supporting that as a framework and do the best you can. Like, or is there regulatory patterns that really need to start taking place here in a different way than we've seen in the past? Well, healthcare is part of the critical infrastructure of this country, in addition to many other sectors, energy sectors, banking sectors, things like that, right? So 85 to 90 percent of that infrastructure is privately held. And oftentimes the government is not in a position to mandate certain things and privately, especially 90% of industry that controls critical infrastructure of this country. So they are starting to and have started to, especially after the creation of CISA and following the Solarium Commission report to sort of start hiring and picking people like like Chris Inglis and like Ian Neuberger and like Jen Easterly to sort of gather our resources together and apply what we know as a government and start to share in these public-private partnerships. And so we have ISACs today. There's a healthcare ISAC, obviously. It's very active today. And the government is a big proponent of taking part in those ISACs. 
Tim, I mean, that's pretty loose, right? I mean, there's not a hard, heavy hand in any of that. That's right. Okay. And that's sort of the question I'm asking. Like, if you think about, and I know just to dip into a little bit more depth in healthcare, we have such regulatory frameworks over time that we put in place for putting electronic health records in. Meaningful use, sort of $35, $36 billion fund we had. You know, is there a tax here back to your business decision, but your regulatory decision as well, that the, that the industry might need to have from the government to ratchet this down a bit? That's sort of the question I'm at. Yeah, that could be one solution, I guess, a tax. Somebody has to be held accountable, and the government is not going to fix this. If we're expecting the government to fix this problem, when obviously hospitals, often profit-motivated hospitals, are looking at their bottom line, cybersecurity is not something that's often seen as a positive impact to their bottom line. It's usually a negative impact to their bottom line. So how we institute some form of tax, as you say, that might be a little difficult. I think the devil's in the details with the regulation side of things that the government is actually trying to institute. And we've been a huge proponent in trying to involve those conversations, working with members in Congress, but also getting involved. And they're asking for input over the next 18 to 24 months on on how that will actually be implemented to sort of decrease the problem that we are having today, because we still do have a long way to go. My struggle today, though, is the way in which ransomware actors are able to operate with impunity, frankly, is just unacceptable. CISA and DHS, they do not have response authorities to do anything about these actors, right? And as I have mentioned in recent conversations with some government officials, imposing cost is that next piece, right? When do we get to impose cost? That was part of that Solarium Commission report. And right now, we're not really doing the job we could do to impose costs. And that's where I think the government can be a little bit more proactive in their abilities to impose costs. Now, oftentimes, we're not going to hear about how the government does do that. And the government is involved. The intelligence community is involved. And there's sharing that goes on, as I mentioned, through these different institutions that have been set up as part of CISA and even NSA and, and other organizations and the FBI and things like that. But in the end, institutions have to protect their own intellectual property and their own data themselves. The government is not going to do that for them. Yeah. But it's interesting to get a little nuance on the issue that we can move on is like through meaningful use, there was a set of requirements dictated by the government that the various vendors, most of it came down to the heavyweights, the electronic health record vendors had to do certain things. And then even this week, different topic, but on the same page, aspects of the 21st Century Cures Act went in place and forced vendors to make sure that they could seamlessly not information block, meaning data could flow freely through some of these regulation factors. Now, something as simple as a baseline is a, a SOC 2 and a pen test once a year. And if you don't do that, you're going to get hit because what's happened is, as you know, is the healthcare providers now dictate that to get through contracting. Now, not all of them maybe do it uniformly like that, they might say high trust or some other kind of certification. Because to your point about knowledge and transparency, I would just think that the government did something very simple as a tax or some kind of a tax or factor to all these vendors to put what the baseline is. And that baseline is such a small watermark. Every time I hear SOC 2 pen test once a year, I always giggle because I'm like, oh, that's great. Like, But that is such a baseline. 
I guess that's where I was really going with all that because I just thought about this a lot. And it feels like at some point in time, we got to factor that into all the other sort of issues that a lot of these vendors have in the space. And let alone, we haven't really even talked about medical device, which is an even bigger disaster. The way they keep their IO, you know, their OS is up to date and things like that. That's right. So that's an interesting concept, the tax. I haven't really thought about it that way. But clearly, I think when you hear about the pen testing and the SOC 2 certification and things like that, what I have heard, at least in my 10 months outside of government and working in private industry now, as I mentioned earlier, folks aren't even doing the very basic things. So if we could get institutions to do the very basic things, we would make progress. But in fact, it's so expensive they just seem to want to rely on cybersecurity insurance as a backup. But as we've seen, especially with the Lloyd's announcement earlier this year, right? Cybersecurity insurance is going to continually get harder and harder to get. And then there's going to be that war clause in there where they probably won't even pay for a nation state sponsored ransomware attack. And that's going to be very difficult. So I think in 2023, we're going to see a lot more institutions less reliant on cybersecurity insurance. And actually, because simply the insurance sort of safety net is just not going to be there. Yeah, it almost becomes like flood insurance, right? Like it's like <laughs> you're in a flood zone and you're trying to get flood insurance, right? No, sorry, we can't do that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's going to get tougher. And so and cybersecurity insurance companies and the people that underwrite those policies are now going to demand much more from very basic implementation policies when it comes to two-factor authentication and things like that in order to be able to acquire cybersecurity insurance. So I think that's going to force a shift to actually happen in the market that we probably have been waiting for. And then where do like the other main issue, because I think we've hit it, like this idea that like if you decide to do a much more robust cyber program, it's a business decision. We, you know, talked about sort of the factors of knowledge and how important some of the transparent knowledge factors. Where does like, you know, as you come out of the government into the private sector, as you know, governance is kind of everything in the private sector. Where do the boards come into all of this? And I mean broad-based. So where are the boards of nonprofit health systems, for-profit health systems, nonprofit for-profit health plans, newco digital health companies, public and private med tech companies? Do you think, given where you've sat, that there should be more sort of ownership at the board down to dictate this? And should you also have to dictate that a board member actually under, you have at least one board member, hopefully an audit as well, committee, that actually understands cybersecurity? Like, is that sort of part of what you guys think about as well? Absolutely. Well, there's a lot of statistics out there that many boards don't have anyone that even familiar, remotely familiar with cybersecurity, right? So that's a big problem. And we need to have more and more board members out there for especially the large institutions where the sort of caught on today. But even in hospitals and healthcare organizations, large ones are starting to have a few people, if not one, maybe a few that have cybersecurity background. I've seen certainly colleagues of mine and people I've worked with in the past that are now getting on boards in various different sectors, especially even in banking and other areas that have cybersecurity background. So that's a positive step forward. But when it comes to boards, accountability, responsibility, obviously a difference between those two. I definitely think there needs to be accountability to the boards because oftentimes they do get to control and vote on the budgets that allow the money to allow those resources to flow. As I mentioned, we work with the American Hospital Association and I hear from these small hospitals, they just can't get the resources. They want 
to help. They want to hire a company like us or or someone else to just get some very basic information. But their budgets are so small, 5% or less that's spent on cybersecurity. They just don't have the money to be able to sometimes go out and get some insights into what they should, what next steps they should actually take. So part of the reason why I joined this company is because we like to help the little guy. And there's a lot of little hospitals out there that would be devastated, shut down if they were hit with a ransomware attack. Yeah. Other thing that I think is fascinating is I'm not so sure all the boards in the country, the various players we talked about, understand even the liability associated with all this and where their governance liability sits. And so I think, you know, your point about knowledge and and what I brought down to that, I think that's the single biggest issue we have is we just don't have enough people that truly understand the depths of this issue from all the angles that it needs because it's not, you know, it's a, you know, it's a multi-factor issue in my opinion. It's not like, Hey, it's, you know, you should be like, Hey, let's just go to InfoSec. Let's go get the IT guys to go fix this issue. No, no, no. That's like not what we're dealing with here. We have such a multi-pronged issue, but I think it starts with the board. I really do. As we close this out, and this has been a great discussion, like what else should people think about at the future of the intersection of kind of cyber and healthcare? Well, I think going into the future, I'm actually really hopeful. After getting out of government after 33 years, and I've seen these public-private partnerships and the concept of a public-private partnership sort of mature, and the collaboration centers like the JCDC that is part of CISA and the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center that is part of NSA, which when I started wouldn't have been even thought of, if you remember. 14 years ago, we couldn't even utter the word offensive cyber, but yet offensive cyber actions are happening against us and we're on the defense. So I think there is definitely some momentum on the government side to help fix this. And we're talking with government officials today that have had experiences now in and out of government and the military that know how to plan for imminent type events and have a plan. I think we have the right people in those positions today. And we still, again, have a lot of work to do. But the fact that we can continue to have these trusting relationships that allow us to share the information that is available on the adversary and what we know they're potentially doing, the trends we're actually seeing, you're seeing a lot more communication come out of government that I've seen in ever since I was in government, things that we were not allowed to even mention that we do talk about today in trust circles. And certainly there has been, this administration even brought in, I know Chris brought in a lot of CEOs of large healthcare organizations and the American Hospital Association was a part of that to have large conversations of, of dozens of CEOs come into the White House and have a conversation about what we're concerned about. There is that two-way conversation that's actually happening. I just need think it needs to happen more often. We need to have more of those conversations that happen in the ISACs, for instance, in the healthcare ISAC, in this case, more information about what the adversary might be planning or what they're actually doing and what the government is seeing. Oftentimes, that's at a classified level, and it's very difficult to share. But they are getting better at being able to try and declassify some of that information without giving away how we actually obtained it and being able to share that with industry so they can be prepared. Because again, the government is not going to fix it. If something happens to you as a hospital or, or medical institution, it's going to be on you to fix it. And that's where the boards are going to be critically important, as you mentioned, to be able to make sure that the resources are there. Right. Well, Tim, this has been terrific. Can't thank you enough. 
your knowledge base and what you know and all the things you can't tell us with your classification, which is too bad. That would have been the fun part of the discussion. We could have dug into all those stories. I appreciate the time and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Me too, Keith. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much for the opportunity. All right. Take care. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. You can find Keith Figlioli on Twitter and on LinkedIn. You can find me there as well. I'm Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks. Join us next time. We'll have another great episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders waiting for you.